I'd like to welcome everyone back to the Duck Pond Wall, and I'm very, very happy that my guest today is Carolee Jackson Bonder and Emory and Henry class of 1974. How you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you. Well, that's a big statement, actually. So let's just jump right into why that's a big statement. You have a big appointment coming up tomorrow, don't you? And and that's actually why we're talking. What is this appointment you have tomorrow? Well, tomorrow is a monthly check-in at UVA with my um, lung transplant clinic. I will do a pulmonary function test, and they will take my vitals. Then I will talk to them and tell them how great I am. <laughs> and... They will tell me what I need to know, and then we'll set up another appointment. Well, so far, so good. Let's just start right there. I don't think anyone has ever said the words to me, oh, I'm getting my lung transplant checked on tomorrow. What what condition did you have, Carolee, that led to you needing a lung transplant? In 2016, I was diagnosed with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. Idiopathic means they have no idea why I would have this disease. The expectation of living is from two years to five years. Um, But I kind of let that pass over my head and not let that be part of my agenda. My agenda was to stay strong and healthy and keep on moving. Until you told me you had this disease, I had never heard of it before. So tell us a little bit about how it how does it manifest itself? What what does it do to you? The disease in the lungs, those little uh, tiny fibers, like when you have bronchitis, you know, they get all congested and worked up. Well, mine started matting together and you can't get the oxygen supply to that you need to live with, you know, to live on. You need oxygen to make your heart work and the rest of your body and your organs need oxygen. So... That's basically it. You just turn into one big mat that has no chance of giving you anything that is productive. And so, but at that time I was doing very well. I didn't even know that there, I didn't know about that disease either. How did did you even find out that you had it? Uh, I went to uh, my regular oncologist because I had cancer, breast cancer in 2005. And uh, I survived that, and I would go to six-month appointment checkups, and now I'm yearly. But at one of my appointments um, in 2016, she said, well, how are you doing? You look great. And I said, everything's going hunky-dory. They had done the lab test. Everything looked good. But I said, I know my body, and this is the only change I recognize. And I said, I take this little sip of air from time to time that's just like that yeah and her eyes got big and she looked at me and she said you're getting a cat scan so the fear was that the breast cancer had gone into my lungs after all these years yeah so um i had the cat scan and that's when they diagnosed me with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis (laughs) Was your was your doctor surprised? I mean, I guess nobody sees that coming if it's idiopathic. Right. My oncologist was definitely surprised. The um, Then I had an appointment set up right away with the doctor, a pulmonologist, and uh, he gave me a pulmonary function test, and he told me what I had, and I said, well, I sure don't feel any different. And he said, well this is your diagnosis. And, you know, there are only two medications that 
you could possibly take, and they are just to uh, give you maybe a, a little extended life. <laughs> and the medications slow down the progression of the disease. But, don't, but he, didn't, he didn't give you any expectation of curing it. No, there's no cure. There's no cure at all. So you live with it. And I had talked to somebody that I uh, was on the board of trustees with at Emory, and he said he was diagnosed back when he was in college playing football, but nothing ever happened. So I thought I was going to be just like him. <laughs> I'm an optimist. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I felt just like that for a long time. <laughs> well, did it, it, did it affect you much initially? It just doesn't sound no. like it. No, I continued doing everything I was involved in. Um, I do a lot of community work, a lot of volunteerism, um, a lot with, um, the university and the arts and Salu. I did all those things and I hiked and I biked and swam. <laughs> you know, I felt like I was at the top of my game and I was uh, doing yoga. I was on the, practicing on the mat all the time and that was keeping me healthy and strong. And really that is the only ammunition that you have when you have something like I did. And that is to stay healthy, eat healthy, sleep well and be well. Well, it's it's funny that you say that because I, I remember us talking about it years ago and people would say, how's she doing? And I was like, I don't know. She looks great. She's, you know, nothing seems to be different. So it was hard to, to know exactly what was going on with you because you looked so good and you were so active. No, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> but now eventually it seems like that started to change. So when did you notice that things were changing and what, what was happening? Well, in 2020, when we had COVID, since I had the disease, I was warned, you know, to be very careful not to get COVID. And I took that um, very seriously and I stayed out of crowds and I, I was very careful being around my grandchildren and their, their kids were very careful about bringing them around me and them being around me because they were around their kids. So, um, didn't see as many people as I normally would have just coming and going. I quit going to yoga class because we had a small studio space. So I practiced at home and they were doing Zoom at home anyway. Uh, I wasn't very, <laughs> I wasn't very good at that because I'm not that disciplined. That's why I was going to class. <laughs> Fortunately in my house, I have a good walking space that I can, and you know, just keep myself active. Sure. And uh, we would hike or bike as much as I could. And that was pretty much it. But then um, 2020, 21 went by and it, it seemed like everything was pretty normal. There were, I was maybe a little bit more tired and running up and down the hill where I live uh, was a little slower. But in 2022, in January, I had um, gone on the medication called OFEV, which is, there were only two for me. And the one that I did not go on affected your skin because I have eczema and a lot of issues and I live on the lake. So the sun was always shining. <laughs> so I chose the other one and it would affect your gut. And I was a pretty healthy person. So I chose that one. I started out at two, uh, 125 pounds and by the time six months went by, I was down to about 110, 
10 pounds. And when I went in the hospital, I was 104 pounds. And the thing the doctor kept saying to me, you must gain weight. You cannot drop off weight. It was very important. And I immediately started physical therapy. I was glad to do that because it was wintertime and I was grateful to be able to get out and everything. We wore a mask every day Yeah, when I was there, going twice a week. And then in between, you had to exercise at least 15 to 30 minutes, you know, just to stay active. Right. I changed doctors from where I had been going to the University of Virginia because I didn't feel like I was getting enough of anything where I was going. There was a lot of um, feeling that nothing really was, there was not enough information being given to me to prepare me for anything. Right. So I was told, you know, give UVA a try. And I called and I got an appointment immediately. I went to uh, Emory Knopf, who was a pulmonologist at, at University of Virginia Med School. And immediately everything was really, uh, I felt like I was really being supported there and that I had more knowledge than I've had in the last few years. Well, that's good. And I felt very, very happy with this big move. He was the one who said from the very get-go, you need to be on the transplant list. And I looked at him like, I don't think I need that. And he said, well, and then he also said, maybe I would consider the medication. And I said, I don't think I need that. (laughs) So anyway, so, so they were, so he was trying really hard to help you. And you were, were you being a bad patient? Carolee admitted. (laughs) I wasn't being a bad patient, but I didn't believe I was that sick. Gotcha. And I really wasn't that sick at that time. But slowly but surely, you know, they do have some knowledge about the profession they're in. Been and, to school. Uh, he was just preparing me and he knew what was coming down the pike and it was getting on the fifth year. And the first thing they said is you have to learn what you're about to get into and the seriousness of this. You need caretakers. To, you have to have all these caretakers. <laughs> And I thought, wow, this is a lot of preparation. And my doctor had already said there is a checklist of what you need to have done uh, for your checkups before you're on the transplant list. And I'm thinking, boy, they are being serious. So this is before you even got on the transplant list. Oh, yes, because I didn't get on the transplant list until right before I got the transplant. Oh, my gosh. It it went downhill that quickly because they won't you will not get on that list unless that checklist is done. Wow. They so, they want your body in really good shape and that is the one thing I had going for me that physically and mentally I was in good shape. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going to argue. <laughs> so basically <laughs> if you can't check all the boxes then they they don't even encourage you to to get on the list and even think about it. Well you can't that's crazy. You can't be on the list if you've got an organ that's got a, a problem. Yeah. They started checking the my lungs to see the capacity of my how big they were and the sizing them up, you know. Evidently I learned that I'm a an elf. An elf? <laughs> I'm a little person. <laughs> a little person. And that was gonna be a problem if I were to get on the list because I'm small and they would we're gonna have to have small lungs, but adult lungs. Interesting. Do you think being an mm-hmm. elf might have actually been helpful with your attitude? Because elves are, they, they typically seem very happy. Maybe. <laughs> so, yeah, how, and like it, fairy flitting around. After being so healthy and feeling so good despite everything, did you 
feel that something changed or did they look at you and say, things are spiraling, we got to do something? Well, in November of 21, I I became very ill with bronchitis and I developed some pneumonia and RSV and that knocked me down the loop. And then I got through Christmas, put up the big tree, did out, you know, all the routine. Because you're an elf. I was a little, <laughs> but I remember sitting a lot. But I was, I found myself sleeping more, resting more, right. longer hours, right. taking long naps in the afternoon. I usually took cat naps if I even took a nap. April, I met my first doctor. So was that April and, of 22? Uh, yes. His name was Dr. Carrot, and his job was to start talking to me about what the transplant would mean. Then, So are you I even saw, on the list at this point yet, though? No. One of the questions they asked me, was would you receive a lung that had hepatitis C and was cured? Because there is a vaccination for that now. And, it, and I said, uh, yes, because it, knowing that I was small and I was older, there were a lot of things going against me. So I said, yes. And would you accept one lung over two lungs? I said, yes. Then in June, let's see, I went for a lung, my first lung transplant pre-visit. That was a big deal. I mean, meeting the doctor was one thing, but actually meeting the whole team and learning all the facts of what I needed to know and, and the checklist, you know, was whether that, I completed everything or not. Was that scary and, to, oh, to hear them talk about uh, what the... No, I was, I was glad. I never look at anything as being scary. It's more of a challenge and I've got to get through it. And I always had my friend Carmel with me because you should never go to anything that is this important without another person to support you. So if my children didn't go, I would take a friend. And also to write things down because there's a lot of stuff coming at you. Oh, absolutely. I try. Yes, absolutely. But they are so good about giving you a detailed report when you leave there. Oh, that's good. Can we sort of skip ahead a little bit to when things kind of, you realize when the, as they say, the rubber hit the road and, and something had to happen? Well... Uh, or as I call it, the weekend when yes. Jeanette was sending me a lot of text messages? No, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, let's see. I got through July, August, and September because I kept going to the beach anytime anybody would ask me. <laughs> <laughs> I was bound and determined not to, you know, stop living. So the last, in September, I went to see Dr. Knopf. Dr. Knopf put me, he said, up the amount of oxygen. That was a big deal. Uh, October 1st, we made a phone call to uh, UVA. And I, well, I actually, I, I talked to my um, lung transplant person. And she said, I think you should just come on in. And she said, I'm going to talk to Dr. Manon and we're going to set you up and they'll be ready for you. So we expect to see you here in so many hours. To be on the transplant list, you have to be a certain number of miles or hours away, or you can't be on the list. And then there are conditions that you must fill, <laughs> or you can't be on the list. And the numerical value of who's on the list and who's not, being the age I am, I was not a great candidate, but the health I was in made me a really good candidate. Right. I was put on the list September 16th, and things rapidly were changing during that period of time. And when I called October 1st, they were ready for me. That boosted me up the list. 
<laughs> oh, wow. So they could see that everything was deteriorating very rapidly. My organs were not very happy with me. My heart was struggling. They talked to me about an ECMO. They lung heart bypass. They take the blood out of your body, oxygenate it, put it back into your body. Oh, goodness. The vein in my neck. And the fear, I didn't realize this, but evidently because of my small size, they weren't sure that it was going to work. They thought the (laughs) device was too big? Yes. Ben and Catherine and Carmel were in the room when they were giving them the download of what could happen and that I may not make it. And if I did make it, I had to be able to walk. If I wasn't mobile or just take a step or two, And if I wasn't mobile, then that's not good either because (laughs) you're off the list. And I could not have anesthesia because my body wouldn't be able to handle it. So I had lanocaine (laughs) and I was awake through the surgery. And then the one thing I do remember is that I had an oyster shell that I would rub my thumb on the middle of it. And I took that in with me and they were horrified that they didn't notice that, (laughs) I guess because of the germs. I had my seashell. Uh, I had it buried down in the blanket with me, I guess. And they <laughs> and they talked to me the whole time and played music, you know, blues or something, something I enjoyed listening to. It took me a long time to come out of that to be able to talk to them. But they said, the first thing you got to do is stand up and show you can take a step. So I stood up and they said, wait, 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 hold on. You know, you're not, we're not ready for you. So I, got, I waited on them and made sure my gown was closed in the back. <laughs> I walked over to the door and they said, well, do you think you can keep going? I had all these big machines behind me and people and I get to the doorway and they said, do you want to go anymore? And I said, sure, I can walk some more. And I said, can we play music? And, and they said, sure, what do you want to listen to? And I said, Taj Mahal. <laughs> We played some Taj Mahal going there, and that just gave me some more energy. And I ended up walking um, 300 feet. And really, when I came back, I was really ready to sit down again. This was right after the ECMO. You had to prove that you could do it before they... Or there was no transplant. And they didn't even think I'd make it through the ECMO because of a lot of reasons. Wow. Wow is right. Yeah, so how long after you had that done... You just stayed in the hospital at that point, right? They said you can stay a month, but, you know, if we don't find lungs for you that match, you know, your blood type. Well, there were a whole lot of matches that had to happen. Size was one of them. Age did not make a difference. That was good. (laughs) But everything else had to match up, and the lungs had to be healthy once they received them, so they had to check them. I finished with my ECMO. I sit down. I remember thinking it could have been a little bit longer than I'm thinking because time was <laughs> nothing to me at that point. And doctor came in and he, he's a real tall man. He's, he knelt down and he patted my knee and he said, I have good news for you. We have lungs and they're young lungs, two young lungs. <laughs> so I was ecstatic. So so that was on the 7th that I did the ECMO. And the next day was prepping and getting ready. And on the 9th, I did the surgery. And the surgery lasted much longer than they thought it was going to last. They had to cut my lungs down on one side because I was so small. Oh, my goodness. The young lungs were too big. And And how, how long was the surgery? Do you know? Instead of being six, it was more like 12 hours. My my 
family was pretty much frantic. Terrified. Yeah, I'm sure. Had a lot, and I was confused in the timeline of when things happened to me. I thought everybody was there at my surgery, but the critical time was really the ECMO, and that's when all my family members came in, my sisters and brothers, and <laughs> checked in on me. And my my brother Sherry came in, and he looked at me and said, "You are a warrior woman." That's all it took, you know. I want to remind everybody we're speaking today with Carolee Jackson Bondura, Emory Henry class of 1974, who has given us the story about having a double lung transplant just kind of recently, actually. But I wish you all could see her. She looks fantastic, and she's going to be with us on campus here very soon. How is your life different now, Carolee? Well, I am just as happy and go lucky as I was before. I certainly appreciate, I've always appreciated my uh, family and friends, but they they had stuck by me, you know, through the whole thing. You have to, they had to be in Zoom meetings from the time I was on the OFAB, the medication, to uh, the time I said, well, I'm off of that, and now I need you for the transplant procedure. They, and, and then after after the transplant, they had to zoom in again when I was going home and what they needed to do to support me when I got there. Wow. So that was very, very important. So if you're mean to people, <laughs> you need to think twice. Because you're going to need them. <laughs> you need to think about your support system. But I, had, I have always had great gratitude. You know, I write it down at night or, you know, think about it in my prayers, but that is an extremely um, important thing for me every day, especially since then. And I'm always thanking my donor. Don't know who it is. I was going to add, that was one of my questions was, what do you know about the donor? Yeah, I, I know nothing except they were a small young person. And I always had the feeling it was a male. Um, Maybe because when I was in sixth grade, I declared I was going to be a tomboy the rest of my life. <laughs> and now you might have boy lungs. Maybe so. So I, I named my lungs Billy and Bob. I think it's nice I, to have a, a naming relationship with your lungs. I mean, you didn't before. <laughs> you know, you never thought about naming them before. Well, now I can talk to them and tell them how much I appreciate each one as they do their job to help keep me alive. <laughs> So Carolee, as, uh, as long as I've known you, you have been like one of the happiest, perkiest people I've ever known, in, in addition to being caring and creative. Do you think it's it's that attitude that really sort of is part of what got you through all this? And where's that attitude come from? That all the Jacksons? Yeah, pretty much so. <laughs> and then I married into the Bondurk family, and they're pretty, they have a very positive attitude, too. And I think it's a nice blend. So, yeah, I, thank you. I've always been the person who could look on the bright side of things. And I think dwelling on anything that's negative doesn't give you anything but negativity. Even when I had breast cancer, I just couldn't wear pink. I mean, why would I wear something that would remind me constantly that, you know, I was ill with something? And I know everybody takes it a different way, but I want to be in the positive moment, you know, and stay that way. Right. And show appreciation for what I have. And give, you know, I think being a volunteer all the time and and putting yourself out there for other people has really helped me. Well, and so yeah. are you back to biking and hiking and doing all that stuff? Oh, yes. As soon as the weather broke, I was back on the bike. And as soon as I got out of the hospital on October 29th, I was 
staying at the Homewood Suites there in, at UVA. And we found all the hiking trails you could possibly go to. And we went to every single one of them. And I started off with going with my little rollator, which is, you know, the little, it's not a wheelchair. It's not, it's one of those things you push and it has a seat. But it's the cool the th- thing about it. It's the thing I wish I had invented because everybody has one. Yes, everybody has to, even young people will end up using one of these things Eventually. if they have an injury. The cool thing is, especially when you're hiking or on a trail, you can lift the seat and stuff things in there, <laughs> whether it's things that you found on the trail. <laughs> Make sure it's not poison ivy. Uh-huh. And uh, I like you know vines and rocks and things like that. So, or you can stuff your extra water and your gear. You didn't you need. just tell me you didn't come back with a rollator stuffed full of chipmunks. That's all I really want to know. No, no, I didn't never take animals. Okay, <laughs> except unless it, unless it's an oyster shell. That's a little different. Well, that was just one shell. Just that one, <laughs> Carly. We're we're about out of time, but people people get a lot of hard diagnoses along the way, and so what do you, what is your best advice on how to how to face that and how to deal with that? Well, to listen to your doctor and don't ignore what they're telling you continue with your appointments and don't fail to go because those are very important stay active you know eat the proper things eat the nutritional food and keep your exercise up don't let that go to the wayside because even if you're tired it's better to get up and move around a little bit well it's good advice Carolee Jackson Bondurant, and also with us today on the show were Billy and Bob, her brand new lungs um, that were just transplanted in the fall of 2022. Thank you so much for taking the time to tell us this story. Thank you, Monica, and thank thanks for, to Emory and Henry College because I love that place and well, I love the people that And you're going to be here next week for more than a vacation, and we're excited about that. And I hope that all three of you, you and Billy and Bob, are excited about being here because we can't wait to see you. Thank you. And thanks to all the transplant donors that are in this world and considerate. Yes, because you are living living proof that it's important. That is correct. All right. Well, (laughs) I want to thank everybody for being with us today, and thanks, everybody, for listening to WEHC 90.7. We are the voice of Southwest Virginia.